Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. I am very excited to be recording this on a new computer setup. A good friend of mine hooked me up with a bunch of parts that I needed, uh, and some other friends helped as well to make this happen, so I'm really excited to try this out. And this is also the first time I'm going to be recording with the NVIDIA Broadcast app, because I was able to pick up a 3060 graphics card using the Newegg Shuffle. So it took me like a year to pick up that, uh, and I had to buy like a motherboard GPU combo in order to get it. So now we're going to put it to use and see what it's like. Uh, So any audio files out there. I'll talk more at the end about this, but let's jump in and see what's been going on this week. First up, I was recently a guest on the Cathode Ray podcast featuring Steve from RetroTech and Louis Cesarin from Zez Retro, and we demoed one of the first edition LCD Sony PVMs, and it was terrible. It had so much lag. It couldn't support anything other than 15 kilohertz, which is a bummer for any kind of flat panel, and the panel itself was so terrible that it just, it was almost unusable for gaming. It was so bad, in fact, that while it appeared to process 240p as progressive, the LCD panel took so long to refresh that it might as well have tried to deinterlace it because it had similar effects. So let me run through what it is that you might want to expect with one of these and how it differs from the ones that are out today. Because once again, I just want to stress that this was a first edition LCD PVM. I'd be willing to bet the OLED PVMs now are excellent. I don't know if they're any better than like an LG consumer grade one, but I'm just talking about first edition stuff. So it is my very, very strong assumption that when this thing was released in the early to mid 2000s, CRTs were still by far a better way to calibrate uh, any kind of movies or TV shows, or basically they were still the go-to when you wanted absolute accuracy of color and pretty much every kind of accuracy except geometry. Those were always obviously still better on LCDs. So during that time period, there was also probably a need to lighten the weight up for many different things. So if you're in a inside a studio in a you know in a big building somewhere and you're calibrating movies or you know you're in a TV newsroom having CRTs was still the way to go. But what if you're an on-location filmer? So it's whether it's, you know, local news going out or whether you're on set at a movie, and all you really need to do is just play back what it is that you just recorded. It doesn't need to be the best quality. You just got to see the shot. Obviously, then, the lighter the equipment the easier it is for everybody. So I imagine a lot of those places used to use those 8-inch CRT PVMs, which are tons of fun if you ever have a chance to get one of those. Um, And now they get to upgrade to a 14-inch for less weight, easy to carry around, bigger screen. And I imagine that's exactly what they were used for. Environments where you could mount them, kind of beat up on them a little bit, and they'll still perform on the field better than just a basic off-the-shelf LCD panel. And of course, Sony gets to tack on their, you know, their whole upcharge for it being a professional monitor. So that's my guess, is that For what these things were designed for, they probably were totally fine, but they're terrible for gaming, and I would not suggest buying one. And if you get one for free somehow, you could have some fun uses for it, but none of them are actual gaming-related. We talk about that as well. So if you're interested in more details and us doing a live demo with a time sleuth and the 240p test suite, uh, definitely check this video out. And also, if you wondered what I'm like after not sleeping at all, um, then also watch this one. What a freaking train wreck I was in this. Uh, I ended up not, like, barely sleeping, and then, you know, so I just worked through the night because I figured might as well make myself useful, and I passed out finally at, like, 7.30, and then I get a text from Steve at, like, 8.30, like, hey, you ready to start shooting? And I'm like, 
Well, let's see how this goes. So I was a bit of a train wreck. Uh, Hopefully I did well enough, though, so it's a a passable podcast. But at the very least, the data that we uh, acquired in this is relevant. Um, And I'd I'd really like to see anybody who has access to to more modern PVMs throw a time sleuth up on there and see what you get for lag. And also check things like motion blur and see what happens when you're just very simply take any... 8 or 16-bit side-scroller. I like to use Super Mario World because I'm, I'm so used to seeing that one, but just run sideways and then kind of see what it looks like. And if, if you see ghosting behind the character, not a very fast panel. And if you don't, then it is, and it might be good for gaming. But either way, these aren't. So definitely check out that podcast if you're interested in more details. This week's podcast is once again brought to you by JLCPCB, and this week I want to talk about their PCB assembly service, or PCBA as you may have seen it written. And that is a service where they not only build your circuit boards, but they assemble them as well. And what a lot of people in retro gaming might be happy to hear is that their assembly includes support for both surface mount and through hole or both at the same time which at first you might think well isn't a nice smaller more compact design always going to be surface mount and in most cases yes you're right except think about all of the devices we use that have things like a scart connector or rca jacks or audio jacks and in most cases those are through hole not surface mount so to have an assembly service that supports both is definitely a huge help to the retro gaming scene you could order from two to fifty pieces, you can get them single or panelized, and you could even order the stencils along with it should you want to make your own at home and have an easier way to do so with these stencils. So please check out their specs on their website for exactly what you would need, and I will have a few projects coming forward that I'm going to have a few of these made through this service so I could walk you through it and do a video showing exactly how it's done, kind of like I did showing everybody how to order PCBs. So once again, check out my previous videos on them or just go directly to JLCPCB for more information on how to get your PCBs made or assembled now too. Brian from Retro USB just posted a new firmware for the AVS FPGA based NES console. Holy crap that's a lot of acronyms. I can't believe I got that right in the first try. Uh, anyway um, it's basically the same exact firmware as last year, but Game Genie was fixed. So let me run through a couple of things just so people get the full perspective. First and foremost, due to the global part shortage, AVSs are up in price and out of stock for over a year. So if you buy one now, you won't get it until summer of 2023, which sucks so much, but it's not Brian's fault. Obviously, the whole world is going through this. So um, that's definitely something I want to talk about first in case you were looking for a pretty cool way to play your original cartridges. And this does play original Famicom and NES cartridges. Next, onto the firmware itself. Uh, Last year, version 1.5 beta allowed you to load your own color palette when you're flashing the firmware. So you have to reflash the firmware every time you load a new color palette, but it's not like there's, it's gonna kill your console or anything. So it's just basically one extra step. And I walk you through exactly how to do all of this. Um, You know, I I kinda took the guide from last year and updated it with, uh, you know, new screenshots and just some new text, but if you have have a retro USB AVS, definitely do this because the color palettes that were built in during its release were fine, but the community has done ridiculous amounts of work to get the color palette much more accurate to what your eyes would see on most televisions. So 
Um, basically, you just load up the scoreboard app um, and you plug in your AVS to your PC. The same power port is also an upgrade port. So basically, just plug it into your PC, load this app, and go to custom palette. I think you have to upgrade the firmware first if you're on an older one, but that's fine. Just upgrade the firmware, wait for it to finish, come back, and then select custom palette. Select the firmware file, which has to be the, the latest firmware file. So hold on to that because you'll be using it quite a bit. Then load up your favorite color palette. I put a link to all of the available color palettes that I know of today. I don't think there's a problem with hosting that. Uh, if there is, somebody let me know and maybe I'll take it down, but uh, I don't think it's any kind of intellectual property and I'm not making any money on it, so I'm not like stealing people's work or anything, but I wanted to put it there for convenience. Um, but if that's wrong, let me know and I'll, you know, we'll talk about it. But the my favorite one is the one that the Mr. Team's been working on for a while. It's the Kittrinks 34. Um, and but put whichever one your eyes prefer. There really isn't, you know, because of the way the NES color palette was generated on TVs back in the day, you could argue that there is no right way. And you could also argue that even if there was, the TV that you saw as a kid was the right way to you. And it's not like it adds lag or anything. So pick the one that you like the best, load it up, wait for it to finish. And then after it's done, go into the settings and turn the palette to custom. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't show you which one you loaded. So if you loaded palette X, it still is going to say palette custom. Uh, and that's pretty much it. And I did a screenshot of what the different ones are like. And I think it really gives you a pretty good idea of, of how even palettes that are supposedly closer to what you're supposed to be still aren't as close as the newest one that's out there. So it's, um, you know, it's definitely worth taking the time to figure out which one your eyes prefer. If you have a mister, then I would check there because that's the easiest. They're all right there in front of you. Um, if you have an AVS, you probably don't have a mister. So fire up any emulation software that will allow you to change the palette and go through multiple games. Because when the NES RGB first came out, uh, way back when, the only thing that I had to compare an RGB first composite to was the NES RGB, uh, or was the original PlayChoice 10 mods, which were a, a chip that was designed to translate everything to RGB for use in the arcades. And I even distinctly remember as a kid playing like Super Mario 3 in the arcade and going, Something doesn't look right. You know, it doesn't seem like the same. Maybe the arcade machine is just broken, but it wasn't. It was the way the color palettes were translated. And when I did the original PlayChoice 10 mod on my NES before the NES RGB was released, I liked the way it looked in Contra. I hated the way it looked in Zelda. And then it was kind of hit or miss elsewhere. But seeing that contrast really it never left me in that sometimes, even though it might be wrong, Whatever your eyes prefer really is the best option for you. So take the time if you're into if colors matter to you. Take the time to try a bunch. Um, I would start with PlayChoice 10 and the Kitrinks, uh, and then some of the Firebrand X stuff, and also the Wave Beam uh, and and the Sony palette. All of those were great. Those were all my favorites. PlayChoice 10 was my least favorite by far, but I loved seeing it for contrast. You know, this is what you would have seen in the arcade. That's what you saw at home. And then just kind of pick your favorite. And for me personally, once I found a favorite, I almost never changed it. There were still one or two games that I said, ah, I prefer the blue hue of the Sony palette on this one. But most of them I've just been leaving on the Kitrinks one and kind of just enjoying it for there. Uh, other than that, the only other thing I would like to very, very politely 
add is that I'm still hoping that Brian takes the time to add different video modes. It was the first comment I had when I first reviewed the AVS upon its release. Um, and the two modes that I would really like to see is a 480p mode. So that way, uh, you know, if you have a CRT VGA monitor, you can just grab a very cheap DAC and there you go. Now you have a very close to original experience on a CRT, but more importantly, I would love to see a 240p mode. So something like a super resolution 1280 by 240, because remember CRTs don't care about resolution, horizontal resolution, they just jam it all in there. I would love to see that so that you could take any HDMI to component converter and now use a consumer grade TV or a Sony PBM or something to play, you know, a very accurate, uh, especially compared to like clone consoles out there, a very accurate way to play your cartridges and really the only other way to play your original NES carts um, that I would recommend if you could buy it, unfortunately. So, Brian, I don't know, man, you get a year and a half. Maybe you set this as a goal for yourself that you're going to shut me up once and for all and add a 240p mode by the time these things start to ship so that people get fired up and give people yet another reason to buy this thing. Uh, but if not, you know, they seem to be selling just fine without that. So I just wanted to put this out there because I do think that there's a bunch of enthusiasts that would say hey, this is a really cool idea. I would love to use this on a CRT as well. But overall, uh, if you have the AVS, this is a no-brainer. The only reason you would not have wanted to upgrade last year is because of the broken Game Genie, and now that's all fixed, so I would just give it a shot. A previously unreleased Atari Jaguar game was just leaked to the public, and it's mostly terrible. And I don't care, I still love talking about found stuff like this, and I think it's really important as well. Um, if anybody wants to just see what the game is like, I have the game playing here in the window, and of course, if you're listening audio only, just jump on the post, uh, and you can see somebody's demo of the game. But basically, it looks to be like... A game geared towards small children, uh, you know, a very easy racer F1 pole position style, and it's definitely unfinished because there's no, you know, talk about no draw distance, there's nothing in the horizon there, so it's, I don't know if I'd call it a prototype or just unfinished or something like that, but regardless of what the game, state the game is in or whether it's good or not, I always really appreciate a glimpse into where the developers were at during that time. Occasionally we'll get one that's mostly finished, uh, like Star Fox 2, that turned out to be a pretty fun game. Sometimes you get stuff like this where, you know, it's not something you'd probably enjoy playing, but you get to see where the developers were at when they were making Jaguar games, what they had to work with, and it's always just a fun little piece of history of, you know, what never was but could have been. So if you want more info on this, check out the Gaming Alexandria link. Um, and it also is playable on original hardware. The person who made this video recorded it with a game drive. So if you have an original Jag and a game drive, you could try this yourself, uh, but you'll probably only try it once ever. <laughs> Still appreciate that it was leaked, uh, and I appreciate, of course, um, Gaming Alexandria and all of the people who take the time to, to really write up and research these older games so that we could have a history of them and really just see what could have been, I guess. Fan translation project was just started for the game Ease One, which is part of the Falcom Classics collection on the Sega Saturn. And it is a little bit confusing to kind of follow a translation of a game onto game, but luckily Pat 
from Sega Saturn Shiro laid this out very nicely in the post, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to get this one right. But basically, a developer going by the name of Merzik started this translation project, and it is still in the alpha phase. But the translation is on the game Ease 1, which was part of that other package for Saturn that had a few different games on it. And that game was originally released on the Master System, DOS, the X68K, and first released on the PC 8801, which you could now play on the Mister, by the way, so if you want, you could experience the very original version of this. But anyway, this patch itself was started by having everything run through Google Translate, which when you take it in the perspective of an alpha patch, I think that's awesome. Hey, I figured out how to, to hack into the game. I got the script. I ran it through an auto translator. Now I've set the stage for people who want to step up and do the translations. So I think there was a small misunderstanding in that the developer didn't say, you know, the translation's done, here you go, I ran it through Google Translate, I, the developer said, I, I built the stepping stones to this so that we could finish the project together. So I believe they're in the process of making this a community thing. Uh, at the moment, I guess you can call it a proof of concept, alpha build, whatever you want to say, but I always really appreciate when people take the time to translate anything, because there are many people out there in the world like me that only speak one language, and I would love to experience other things that after they were translated. Um, this is kind of like a, a bump and play RPG style, so I don't really... But this isn't my favorite style of game, but this is absolutely the style of game that you would really want a full translation of, or, or need a full translation of. So thank you to everybody who's already jumped on the project, and if you want to be part of a translation project, and you love the Saturn or the Ease games, then maybe now's the time to step up and see if you can help. There's been a video floating around the past few weeks on the YouTube channel There Ought to Be about a Wi-Fi-enabled Game Boy cartridge that allows you to just search Wikipedia at the moment, but it's a proof of concept that will allow for possibly other developers to step up and use it for other projects, and I think it is absolutely cool, and I love projects like this, because even the developer themselves said it's probably one of the most useless things they've ever made. It could also lead to other things. The, you know, the full project and the source around it could be used to learn and apply to other stuff, and I just love people who go deep dive nerding out into this. I kept meaning to cover it until I found that Tito from Nacho, Macho Nacho Productions was covering this, uh, and he nailed it. Awesome video that completely shows everything you need to know, demos it, and even speaks to the original creator of the project, uh, so you could kind of hear directly from the creator what this is and why you might be interested. So I would start off with Tito's video, because it's kind of a short, less technical way of grasping things, uh, and then if you're into this stuff, definitely check out the original There Ought to Be video, because Sebastian, the creator, goes into a lot more detail of the code and what it could be used for. For me, personally, what I would love to see is, like, a ROM cart that could also access a network share so that maybe you could load up your favorite ROMs on it uh, on, on the card itself and then access the rest from the share or even more importantly if you could press a button to sync the network share with the ROM cart especially for handhelds so that way you could always just load up your Game Boy or Game Gear or whatever else press a button and have everything synced so your save files go to the backup location and any new ROMs you may have added come right onto it don't even know if that's possible, by the way, but hey, maybe Sebastian would know. So uh, check out the video, and if you're smart enough to work on stuff like that, maybe check out the code and everything and see if that's something that could even be made. 
I recently posted an interview with Nick from Pandemonium Reviews and had a great time getting to know him. When I sent out the notifications on social media that it went live, I said it's very cool to see a content creator that I like end up being an awesome person. And that wasn't like a backhanded slap in the face to the last few guests. It's just that, you know, I've talked to Chris a bunch over the years and I didn't really talk to the Sega Saturn Shiro crew, but I've seen so many of their live events that I knew what to expect and they were just as cool as I thought. Uh, but I didn't really know anything about Nick other than watching his documentaries and really enjoying the hell out of him. I covered a few here. Um, there are a few others that I enjoyed myself that I, I didn't think were 100% a fit for retro RGB, but still something that I enjoyed watching watching and I really had a great time talking to him and hearing about you know how he makes some of these hearing about his background hearing about jumping out of an airplane uh, that's something we talked about at the end Pat Dave we might all get thrown out of an airplane together at some point prepare yourselves <laughs> but if uh you know as always if you're into these long-form podcasts they're available on all of the audio only platforms as well as a video so just listen or watch wherever is the most convenient for you i genuinely don't care and i mean that in a nice way obviously uh, whatever is the easiest place for you to listen i'm just really happy that people are enjoying these and i'm especially happy i get to highlight some more people in retro gaming that maybe you've seen their content before but you didn't really know the you know the person behind the curtain or whatever so check out the interview if you're interested um and uh, I, you know i'm definitely going to keep doing these because i've had a great time posting these monday interviews and i really don't want to stop and as long as you keep watching i'll keep doing them or, or listening watching or listening <laughs> Well, it's been a long time coming, but pre-orders are now open for Darksoft's CPS-1 multi-kit. I'll talk about the pre-order process first and then swing back around to what this kit is, just in case you might not know. But first and foremost, the, there was a pre-order list on the Arcade Projects forums for a long time now. And while those people are first in line to get it, anybody could pre-order at the moment. You just have to make sure that if you are on that list to put your name and the number of the, uh, the number listed when you purchase through any of the resellers. Uh, I put a list of trusted resellers right here in the post, so you could uh, go there or you could just go to the main forum to double check. But basically, place your order, put whatever number you are on the list, and if you're within the first 250, yours will get sent out probably in February, barring anything crazy happening. You know, with global part shortages and shipping, you never know. Maybe there's going to be a box shortage or something, but should be out in February. And then everybody else is going to get their shipped a month or two later, or once again, maybe a little longer, depending on if there's any delays or anything like that. So I think this is a perfectly fair way to do it. Um, it does highlight the people that have been supporting the project since the beginning, but if you're the type of person like myself that doesn't want to have to remember this stuff, just go pre-order right now. And if you're not on the list or if you're higher up on the list, you'll just get yours later, but you don't even have to think about it. Um, now, I need to talk about the price, and I need to talk about what this is, and both of these things really go hand in hand. So, this is a kit that replaces the game board in your CPS-1 arcade package. So, the Capcom Play System arcades consisted of a main motherboard, and then a game board that contained the game ROM and a lot of other chips on it, uh, and then another board as well. And while I don't want to go into a deep technical explanation, and I don't think I'm enough of an expert to anyway, all you really need to know is that in order to use this kit, you need everything except the game board, and there are you know preferred ones to choose from. Definitely check out the forums if you want all of this extra info. But 
The purpose of this is to replace the game board with one that you could throw an SD card in and basically make it like a flash cart or a ROM cart for the CPS1 arcade platform. Also, part of this kit is includes a way to play CPS 1.5 games, which, once again, needs a little bit of explanation, but I'll, I'll get through it quick. So, Capcom Play System 1 was a set of boards that highlighted and was able to use a bunch of games for the arcade platform. The CPS 2 was the same thing. Those were the turtle shell ones. But between those two, there were a few games released that also offered updated sound capabilities. And those are much rarer and way more expensive these days. And in order to get that working, you need to make sure to have all of the right pieces or just use Darksoft's multi-kit. So that, the Q sound part was one of the major things that took almost an extra year to figure out in order to get this multi-working. But it really makes sense to push for that, and it really made sense that Darksoft wanted to get it out you know, as good as possible, as accurate as possible, because of how expensive those Q sound games are. So if you put this into perspective of somebody who maybe has a whole bunch of CPS1 original games already, you might not need it. Or on the flip side, even if you do have a bunch of original games, including Q sound games, maybe you don't always want to bang around those things inside your arcade machine, or maybe you don't always want to bring that around. You want an alternative, and now there's one that could host all of them. Now, it is very, very expensive. This is not for the Raspberry Pi crowd. It's about $800 after shipping. But I talked about the price towards the end of this because you need to have everything else in perspective. If you're an original arcade nut and it's just something that matters to you, regardless of whatever, whatever other awesome solutions are out there, it's important to play on original hardware. But... Picking up just one of these Q sound games is going to be more expensive than buying an entire kit from scratch with including this multi. So it's one of these things where it is extremely expensive, but if you're the type of person that was going to go down this road anyway, or especially if you're the type of person that already owns like Cadillacs and Dinosaurs and The Punisher, and you might not want to lug those around, this is actually a cost-saving investment. So you could choose to look at this any way you want. You know, it is completely and totally fair to say, I have 10 different versions of Street Fighter. I don't need this. I got a Raspberry Pi. I got the awesome Mr. Core. This is a waste of money. For you, it might be, and that's totally fair. But there's also a group of people that are going to say, I want this original hardware. It's important to me. I already have Marcus's amazing HDMI kit built into my CPS-1. Now I'm going to add this multi so I can have one CPS-1 kit with the entire set of games all on it. And that's also fair too. So it's, uh, you know, all of these comments that you often see like, oh, just get a Raspberry Pi. If that's what you're looking for, that's awesome. But there are more than one choice and there are a lot of people out there that want this. The only other thing to note is that because of the shortage of chips and because a lot of this stuff was new old stock or, or repurposed things, and uh, I'm kind of speculating on the last part, but the important thing I'm trying to say is a lot of these will have original Q sound chips, and a lot of them will have FPGA recreations of the Q sound chip based on Hotego's design from the Mister. Now, that does not mean that this entire thing is FPGA emulation. It only means that the chip, the single Q sound chip itself might be replicated in FPGA. I think Darksoft was only able to procure a whole bunch of the originals, and once those run out, that's kind of it. So um, that, in my opinion, is something where I would love the original chip just 
to say I had it for collector's purposes, but from a functional point of view, it's going to be identical. So um, hopefully I gave a clear rundown of everything. Uh, you know, pre-orders, you know, welcome, everyone's welcome, but people who have been on the list get priority, which is totally fair. Uh, it's very expensive, but if you put it into perspective of your own arcade setup, it might be the perfect choice or not. We're just getting a mister with a uh, JAMA adapter might be a better investment for you. No, there's no wrong answer here. Whatever's right for you is the winner. Uh, just, you know, respect everybody else's choices because it's just always disheartening to have people come in and be like, that's dumb. I can get a Raspberry Pi for a dollar and play every game that's ever made. Like, you know, respect other people's choices because everybody that does have original arcade hardware already knows what I'm talking about. And even if you don't, you might really enjoy it. So find a friend that has one or go to one of these tournaments and, and just kind of see what it's all about. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, brought to you care of Lou's Retro Source. I'll run through everything pretty quickly here, but please subscribe to Lou and check out his videos if you want more details on all of this stuff. And of course, you can subscribe to each of the Mr. Developers individually if you have the ability to on Patreon. And I will start with one Patreon account that's been very exciting lately. Robert Pipe's PlayStation Core has gotten a ton more updates. And while it's still not ready for complete public release, the sound uh, implementation that he worked on went from 60% done to done pretty much in the past week. And originally, two RAM sticks were required to get sound, but it seems like we speculated on over the past couple of weeks, it will just be a one RAM stick implementation for most people. So, you know, if you're running any kind of test software or you want to do cycle accurate, just for test purposes, you might need to, but for gamers, I'm pretty sure you're totally fine with just one and there won't be any other issues. Um, Lou demoed a few things in the video, uh, but also there's links to Robert's Twitter account. And once again, you know, Patreon, if you're into that. There's also been a bunch of Sega Saturn Core updates. Told you this was getting exciting. Uh, SRG320 has updated his Mr. Saturn Core with fixes to the SCSP, VDP1, VDP2, and the SCU. So basically all the really hard stuff, um, SRG320 is jumping in and really fixing. And I believe Sorg also assisted with one of those as well, if I remember the Patreon post correctly. So that's another pretty exciting one. Uh, also, the Atari 2600 core is going away because it's going to be integrated into the 7800 core, and this is a good thing. It might be a little confusing, uh, especially if this disappears completely and you wonder where your 2600 went, but since the 7800 already has some quality of life improvements for the 2600 stuff, then it's and it's backward compatible anyway, it did make sense for the team to kind of roll everything into one and concentrate all their efforts on one core. So maybe they'll figure out a way to do like the same way they do with the sim links and you could click on 2600 and it'll just fire up the 7800 core. Either way, it doesn't really matter. As long as you know that's the core that you're looking to click on, full 2600 support is still there. Uh, and I still have to go back and I want to double check peripheral support because my favorite 2600 games are the spinner games. I think most of them still totally hold up today. It doesn't really matter when they were made. They're just fun little ways to kill a couple of minutes. So, um, you know, at first, if you heard the 2600 core was going away, you might have gone, oh, what the hell? But it's a good thing overall. Uh, and I'm sure the team will find more interesting and creative ways to, to update those. 
There's also a standalone MSX core. I believe one core is a general, the current MSX core is a general one that supports MSX 1, 2, and 2 plus. And now they're separating the MSX 1 core, probably for reasons that I don't understand, but are completely the right reason. So I'm just going to roll with this one. Um, there's also a Tatung Einstein TC101 computer core. And the arcade game Zero Wing Core has been made publicly available. The developer hadn't had much time to work on it, so they decided to just release it to the public, but you'll need to obtain it from the project's GitHub. Uh, and it sounds from Lou's overview like it's still in progress, so if there's any developers out there that want to help working on it, or help work on it, that would be very awesome. Um, the Ypsilon also uh, has another alternate script downloader, um, and that's, you know, any of these downloaders are really just ways to help get Mr. Updated without having to pull from multiple sources. And those scripts have been such a big help over the past couple of years, and they've evolved really well. So um, I guess I would just kind of look which script is best for you. I'm still using Update All, and I, I think that's one that's probably still current, but I would just kind of take a look at the different scripts out there, but it's great that different things are available just to make a one-button update better for people, or, or simpler, I guess. And there's a couple other updates for Acorn Electron, Acorn Atom, and the Color Computer 2, which... I still want to wait till I get like a big clunky keyboard and I want to try the Color Computer 2 core set up in a way like it would be in the early 80s because when I was a little kid, my dad got a Tandy 1000, which was like 1800 bucks in 1983 money, so whatever that is with inflation, and I kept wanting to mess with it, clearly, because I'm a nerd, uh, and... I guess he got tired of me using his computer, so I got the TRS-80 Color Computer 2, which had a game cartridge slot on the side, but most notably it had a cassette deck, which you could also use to listen to tapes with your headphones, but that's how you loaded games, was on cassette. And it was ridiculous and silly, and it's just a perfect example of 80s technology, futuristic technology. So I've been waiting to use the Coco 2 core. I think I booted it once just for fun, but I, I kind of want to go through and play some of the stuff I did as a kid, even if I only spend an hour or two with it just to kind of have that experience. And I'm, I'm really glad that I could do something like that via the mister on like an older monitor that has compositor S-video input using some of those converters or something like that. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. But anyway, thanks very much to Lou for, for doing these and keeping everybody in the loop of all of the different mister stuff. Uh, I really appreciate having one location to be able to rely on to get all this info because... Pretty much my only complaint recently with the Mr. Stuff was that it was kind of hard to absorb everything that was going on with all of these different things I was into. And some days I just wouldn't have the time to read the Patreon posts or see the demo videos, and Lou's got us covered. So thanks, Lou, and thanks to everybody involved with the Mr. Project, because in case you haven't figured it out, I'm a huge fan, and I just can't wait to see where it's going to go next. Well, that's it for this week. So any audiophiles or fellow podcasters out there, what do you think of the audio? I use the NVIDIA broadcast filtering instead of the noise filtering that I normally would use with isotope ozone afterwards, but I still did the normalize and the compression using Audition that I did. 
Um, and my, my audio processing has changed over the years. I used originally used Epos Vox's guide for um, Audacity, and then I used this guide for Audition. And now I've kind of switched over because I had a few podcasts I recorded that had some pops and clicks that Audition couldn't get fixed. So Isotope had a sale on their software. Shout out to Dark Aries for, for reminding me about that multiple times. But um, I finally was able to pick that up in my process up until this week was to have zero processing while I record. Just raw mic into, uh, which is the uh, Deity S mic, into the Motu M4, and then I would run it through a denoise plugin, a noise filter plugin in Isotope, then I'd run the normalize command in Isotope, and then I would import that back into Audition to use the broadcast compressor, because I just like the way that sounds, especially with this mic. But... There, it still wasn't perfect. The noise um, filtering wasn't as good as I would hope. And of course, this is a boom mic, which is, you know, a foot and a half from my face, whereas the other mic used to be right here, which made it a little easier to filter out sound. Um, but also, I, I was hoping to use Isotope for everything, but I couldn't use, I couldn't find a compressor that worked right. So if anybody knows uses Isotope and knows that, please let me know. I'm basically just looking for the broadcast compressor in Audition, but in Isotope, so I could keep it all in one program and speed up processing a little. The only other thing I would really like to figure out, which people have suggested, but I don't, I couldn't find a guide on it, is how to do a proper filter to cut off all sounds below a frequent, a certain frequency, so that when I'm accidentally bumping the table, you don't hear that through the microphone, uh, or at least you wouldn't hear that through your subwoofer, because I would remove all of those extra low frequencies. So that shouldn't affect my voice at all, it shouldn't affect the processing, it would just cut it off so that nothing comes through your subwoofer when you're listening, or if you get really bassy headphones. And I guess the same thing for the super high-pitched stuff, you never know, some Sometimes the processing makes a weird sound. Only lasts a second, but you know that would be nice. So anybody out there is familiar with Isotope RX Elements 8, the, whatever the new one is. Uh, you know I don't think I'm going to need the denoiser anymore with the the Nvidia app on here. But normalize, and then it seems to be working fine. But then I would also need a compressor, and I'd want to cut off the frequencies. So anybody that could point me to guides, Epos, if you're listening, maybe you already have one. But I did search your channel, and I couldn't find one. So, um, and you know, just overall too, how's everybody think the audio sounds? Uh, I'm obviously excited about this stuff, but I waited to the end to ramble because I know some people get annoyed when I talk about microphones and audio. This isn't the podcasted YouTube channel. This is retro RGB, but I, I'm still into it and. Most most importantly, I'm always trying to improve any way I can, especially when it's just minimal stuff. Like, I finally got a video card with a built-in feature, so why not use the feature that came with it anyway to see? So, uh, as always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially to anybody who supports in any way they can. People hooking me up with PC parts, people tipping on Kofi, or people signing up for the monthly services like Patreon or Floatplane. Uh, even people just spreading the word about this stuff. I appreciate it so freaking much because it's you who's keeping all of this stuff alive as well as all of the behind the scenes research and a lot of the stuff I've been working on. So thank you all so much and I will see you next week.